Good morning. Today's daf is daf gimel. I'm going to go from the first line of daf gimel. Today's shiur is Nishmas, Zechariah Yerachmiel ben Dov Ber, and Rafael Henoch ben Aaron. May the neshamas have an aliyah, and may their memory be a blessing. Um, just interesting, the point we left off yesterday is actually quite a practical point, just didn't get a chance to discuss it. So I'm not going to discuss it now, I'll just mention some of the questions that it affects. Um, we mentioned we were discussing differences between Adar Rishon and Adar Shani, and we ended off with a Machloikes um, when, when dating a document. So Rabbi Yehuda said, when you're writing Adarishon, you just have to write Adar. You don't have to say Adarishon. And when you're writing Adarshani, then you must write, specify Adarshani. Um, so what are some halachic ramifications that this sugya touches on? What happens if someone was born in, an, in, a regu, in a year which had only one Adar, and their bar mitzvah is in a year with two Adars? Do they become bar mitzvah in Adar Aleph or Adar Beis? And it's the same thing with if someone's celebrating a Yortzat in Adar, in Adar, and then it's a leap year the following year or the year after, do they celebrate the Yortzat? I mean, they used to have uh, fasts and they used to fast on the Yortzat, etc. I mean, that's a problem in Adar, uh, on certain days in Adar, but either way, um, if they were fasting for the Yortzat or they wanted to celebrate the Yortzat, do they celebrate it in Adar Aleph or Adar Beis? I'm trying to think, there were, there were a few other ramifications but that's just i think an interesting thing to keep in mind which one is the main adar and which one is the secondary adar the various opinions when it comes to different halachas and um, ways to practice okay let's go back to al Gamora. Um, so it starts it said in our mishnah that on the remember we were discussing just because we wanted to mention when you um, when you start announcing and when you start collecting the shkolem, and we mentioned all uh, a few other things that start happening on the 15th of Adar. So now, what are the general needs of the public? So how are we going to find out what the general needs of the public? We're going to bring another Mishnah, which is actually discussing Cholamoid, things that you're allowed to do on Cholamoid, but it mentions them as part of a list of things that would be included as, I guess, Tzorche Rabim, communal needs. I almost, I guess, when you pay taxes, what are they going for? That could maybe be a way of defining, one way of uh, looking at it. But... Um, but again, so this, interestingly enough, this is not to do with our case of Shkolim. This is to do with Cholamoy, but obviously it will overlap. It says, Donin dinay mamonos, vidinay nefoshos, dinay makos. The courts would judge monetary cases, um, capital cases, and cases regarding lashes. Upoidin erchin v'charomim v'hegdeishos. And they would redeem or collect Erchin, Charomim, and Hegdashos, those are different ways of donating money or property to the temple. So they would also help handle those on Cholomoid. Umashkin es a soita, they would give a soita to drink. Remember, a suspected adultera, adulteress, if she's, I mean, the whole specific scenario with the sota, but sometimes she would have to drink water, so they would go through that procedure on Cholomoid. Vesorfin es apora, vorfin egla rufa, if necessary, they would burn a pora aduma so that you could sprinkle the ash, mix it with water, etc., and sprinkle the ash on people who need to be purified. And also, if there was a scenario where they needed an egla rufa, remember that's where if a, if a victim, a murder victim is found between two cities, 
the sages to the oldest, they take down the the Sanhedrin, go with the sages of the of the nearest city, and they take it to a valley or a stream, and then they break its neck there, that whole procedure, they also do that on Cholamoid. I mean, interesting enough, this is all necessary to mention, because on Cholamoid, there is a Isur Malacha. It's very hard, it's not hard, it's complicated, it's quite complex to define what Malacha is also on Cholamoid. There are various opinions, quite a, a like, um, at least three main main opinions on what Osir is, it Dorais, is it Rabbonin, etc. But these are all things that would be the Tzorcha Rabbim that you'd be allowed to do. Then it says, V'roitzin avde Eved Ivri. You can pierce the ear of an Eved Ivri. Remember, he's only supposed to serve for seven years. And if he wants to stay on as a slave, then you have to um, pierce. He has to get his ear pierced standing by the doorpost. Umatarin esa metzora. You go through the purification process of a metzora. Umafrikin esa minal ma'al gabi amayim va'emachzirin. You unlock the water, but you're not allowed to return the lock to the water. Basically, over the winter period, interesting enough, most of these, or at least it's very likely that this brasa, as we'll see, is discussing Cholamoid Pesach. But either way, over the winter period, they'd keep certain systems locked so that the water would collect in them. But no one would be able to take water because in winter there's generally, in Israel there was generally an abundance of water. And in summer that's when it gets dry. So when it's Pesach time or Cholamoid, they, they were allowed to unlock these systems so that the public could start using them. But again, they would never, they, they wouldn't lock them until much later, till the next season. And that's, yeah, that's why I'm sure. Um, Tamon, now we're going to just raise some issues with this, this Brysa. With and Al Mishnah it says Tanan Tamon Tanina. It's taught over there. Mashkin beis hashlochin umetzayonin es hakvoros. You can water irrigated fields. I because an irrigated field doesn't rely on rain, and therefore if you're not going to water it, it's, it's you're going to lose out. And you're allowed to mark graves. Like so now the Gemara asks, wait, you mark graves. Our Mishnah that we started off our Masech Eshkolim with mentioned that when do you mark graves? On the 15th of Adar. And this price is speaking about marking graves, saying, no, you can mark them on Cholamoid. But haven't you just marked, let's say it's talking about Pesach Cholamoid, you marked them a month ago. So what are you doing now? Marking them again. It says, didn't you already mark the graves in Adar? It says, you can explain it. Now there was a downpour of rain and uh, the markings got washed away. Um, and therefore they had to remark them and you're allowed to do. It's considered something that's necessary that you would be allowed to do on Cholamoid. We'll see shortly in the Gemara why um, um, more about marking graves. They were allowed to also, they would go out on Kilain. Remember, we mentioned that um, they would they would an, announce people to check their fields for Kilain on the first of Adar and the fifteenth of Adar. Inspectors would go out. It says Lok Far Yotzami Adar. What do you mean on on uh, on These inspectors would go out. Didn't they already go out in Adar? So Tiftar, we can explain it. Shehoyso Hashana Afela. It was a year of late harvests, and therefore the nothing had started to sprout yet. You couldn't recognize the growth. 
I generally you're right. Generally around Adar is when the plants start to grow, but some years it only happens in Nisan. And therefore if they went out in Adar and saw that the fields were fleshly plowed and there weren't enough the growths weren't long enough to tell what that's wheat and that's uh, something that shouldn't be growing in the wheat field or whatever it was if it wasn't visible then they'd have to go out on Cholomoid now the Gomorrah wants to go into um, goes into marking graves so just one um, just before we start basically what they used to do the ideal thing is they would pour lime over a seed uh, some sort of lime over the over the ground or the stones near the grave seems the pr- the ideal way that it would be done is to put a marker pour on let's say a stone marker on by the head of where the person was buried or by the foot and by the foot of the where the person's buried and then those markers tell you that between there is a corpse so that's what that's what we're discussing. That's what's going on here. This marking of the grave. And yeah, so the Gomorrah says, How do we know that you have to go around marking graves? What's the source? So Rebbe, the first source we bring is Rebbe Brechia, Rebbe Yaakov Bar Bas Yaakov, Rebbe Brechia and Rebbe Yaakov, the son of the daughter of Yaakov, Beshem Rebbe Chunya, in the name of Rebbe de Vas Chavron of Bas Chavron, or Rabbi Yosi and Rabbi Yusa Omrilo. The Omrilo, some say no, it was Rabbi Yaakov Bar Acha Beshem Rabbi Chan. Chunia de Vas Chavron, Rabbi Chizkia, Rabbi Uziel, Rabbi Berejer of Chunia, the base Chavron, Beshem Rabbi Chunia, the base Chavron. Okay, so it's a whole discussion exactly who said this, but Tomei Tomei Yikra. It says by the Mitzorah, the someone who has leprosy, he has to, when he's confirmed and he's exiled from the camp outside of Yishraim, anyone who's coming near him, he has to shout out, Tomei, Tomei, I'm Tomei, I'm Tomei, don't come near me. And we learn from there, It's that the Tumor should call out and tell you, don't come close. So, so too, we have to, that's where we learn out that you have to mark graves it's kind of the tumor calling you, don't come close, it's Tomei here. A second explanation, a second source is Rabbi Elob, B'Shem Rabbi Shmubar Nachman, V'ovru ha'oivrim ba'aretz v'ro etzem odom. This is in, in uh, Yechezkel speaking about in the future after the, major, the huge war of Gog and Magog and they'll have cleared a lot of the land but there'll still be lots of soldiers, uh, lots of corpses around or parts of corpses around and it says, so those who are passing through the land, and they see a bone of a person, he will build nearby at Sion. So we see when you find this bone, you have to mark the you have to mark the bone. So we have two sources. Again, the first source is we saw by Mitzorah, we learn out that you have to warn people that you tome or that there's tumors you don't come close, so you have to mark a grave. And the second source we brought is this from Yechezkel that says when they would come across a bone, they would have to bury it. Um, interesting and I guess in, important to note is uh, when we discuss this bone here, we're actually not discussing any bone of a corpse because we know there are different types, there are different ways that trauma is transmitted. There's mago masa through touching or through being moved, through carrying or moving it, and also through ohel. 
Now, the only relevant one, the only one we concern that you actually need a marker for, you have to mark it, is Ahel. Because if the only concern is that you might touch the tumor, well then bury it. And there's no tumor. The problem is, with we know, with a human corpse, if someone steps over a corpse, or even just reaches their arm or leans over the corpse, they become tome because of Ahel. Now, a bone... A single bone generally would not transmit tumas oil. It would transmit tumor through touching it, and through, I think through moving it as well. But um, but not through uh, but not through oil. Now there are three scenarios where bones themselves would be would transmit tumas oil. If someone just leans over it or walks under it. Or steps over it obviously would would become tome avatuma. When is that? One is if it's roiva hakov, if the amount of bones or the size of the bone is a quarter of a kav. A second one is if it's most of the skeletal structure. Sorry, not three, there four. Most of the skeletal structure. And the third one is if it's a majority of the number of bones. So let's say it's lots of small bones, like the ones in the fingers and the toes and the foot. But it's a lot of hands and feet, so it's a lot of bones. It's by number, it's the majority, even though it's not a majority of the skeleton that also transmits. And if it's a skull or the spine or a whole spine, then it transmits tumor. So in all those cases, even though bones, as I said, generally do not transmit tumor, if you have one of those four cases, it does transmit tumor. So this discussion, when they're walking through the land and they find a bone. Is, would have to meet up with one of those criteria, otherwise, and they have to, because it says they have to put up a marker. I, if you, as I pointed out, the only reason you'd need a marker is if you're concerned it transmits tumas oil, transmits tumor through, uh, um, transmits tumor through. Sorry, through oil, through leaning over it, not with touching it, because if the only concern is that it transmits tumor through touching, well then you just bury it. So now we're going to analyze this pasuk. So again, the pasuk was There were those walking through the land, and they see the bone of a person, and they will build or set up next to it a marker. It says So what do we learn from bone? That you even make a mark for bones. As I said, it would have to be one of the four cases where you worried about Thomas oil, but you do armor sign for bones, not only for corpses. Adam, what do we learn from the land? Adam, we learn from here that you make a mark even if it's just the skull or the spinal cord. Spinal column. Ubono, what do we learn from Bono? You set up the Tsiun. Mikan Shemitsayinin al Gabe Even Kavua. We see from here, but the fact that it uses the words Bono, which is built, it must be on a stone that is fixed to the ground. Im Oimer at al Gabe Even Telusha Afhi Oilechis Umutami Bamokamacher. If you're going to say. You can put it on a loose stone. You can mark a loose stone. Well, it's going to roll, and then you're going to say another place is Tomei, which there are two problems. So that's why you have to, Bono means build, and generally in the context of, I guess we, we'll see it throughout the Gemara, whenever you're using this language of building, it's generally what's connected to the ground, not something that's detached from the ground. So loose. So you have to mark the actual ground or a stone that is fixed into the ground. Now, what's the problem? There's a dual problem. One is if that stone rolls and you see the marker elsewhere. 
The one problem is obviously people are going to be walking over where the corpse is. And then they're going to become Tomei and not aware of it. And they're going to go into the base of Migdash. They're going to eat Kodshim, all these severe Averas, um, if they if they Tomei and they don't aware and they aren't aware of it. Another problem is, is someone will realize that will go near that other marker, and they will not be Tomei, but they will think they Tomei. And you might end up burning Kodshim. Let's say they forgot that they walked over that stone. They remember, oi, I walked by that grave. There was a stone that was marked with this lamb, this white lamb. And I know it, that represents that there's Tumah there. And I accidentally touched Truma or I accidentally touched Kodshim. And now they're going to burn that Truma or Kodshim. But really he's Tahor. And you're not allowed to burn Truma or Kodshim and things like that unnecessarily. So that's a double. So it's a double problem if this marker moves. Then it says... Etzlo, it says you put the marker next to it. He says, Lamakam Tahara. You put it actually in a Tahar place. As I explained at the beginning, you don't put the marker, you don't put the lamb over the corpse. You put two stones on either side, on either end of the corpse, and mark them, and you know that the corpse is between them. What's the reason for that? Because if you're walking along, and there's just one stone, the mark, the, the lamb poured over the ground, but time you reach it, it's going to be too late because you're going to have put your arm or lent over it or something, and you're already going to be Tomei. So the markers were on Tahar land, let's say, to the head of where the corpse was and to where the feet of the corpse was, but a little bit past, so that you reach the marker, you see the marker, but the marker is actually perfectly Tahar. It's only between the markers that is Tomei. And then... Um, so that's the other one. And Sion, Mikan it says you have to put a marker. So we see very clearly from this uh, Brysa that you have to put a marker. Then it says, what happens What happens if you find one stone that is marked or you find one marking? So as I said, generally they would mark on two sides. But what happens if you find one marking? I guess if it's a bone that's a quarter of a cav or a pile of bones and it doesn't get spread out it's in one small area so you just mark on top of it but the problem is as we said they would generally mark with two marks so even though you're not supposed to do this you're not supposed to mark over the corpse as we said you're supposed to mark on either end of the corpse and it's tome between if there is only one marking if you do lean over it you become tome I would assert that there must be that there's a corpse and it's placed under it. What happens if there were two markers? If you lean over the markers, you tohor. But if you walk or lean over between the markers, then you tohor. If you can see that the ground's been plowed between the two stones, well then it's obviously two individual markers, because who would plow over a grave? But between them would be Tahar. I'm, I'm changing the Girsa a little bit to the Girsa of the Groh. But on top of the markers that has plowing between them would be Tomei. Tony, we learned in a Braisa. You don't mark, put a marker over flesh because the flesh is going to decompose. Rebbe Yuster Bar Shunim Bokumi Rebbe Mono. Rebbe Yuster Bar Shunim asked before Rebbe Mono, 
Loi nimsa metame taharos lemafreya. But then you might end up making taharos tome. I, if you've got a, let's say there was just flesh of a corpse and you buried it and you didn't mark it, someone's actually go, accidentally going to walk over it and they're going to become tome and then they're going to go trust, uh, touch tum, a truma or kojim or something and make a tome. So why aren't you concerned about that? Why don't you mark it? It says, It's better that they cause trouble for a short term than cause trouble long term. Why? As I explained before, if there's a marker where there's no... To, the concern is that while the, before the flesh is decomposed, someone's going to become Tomei, which is very short term. The, the flesh decomposes quite quickly. But if you put a marker there and everyone thinks there's Tuma there, well then, they might actually treat items they touched as tomo when they really tahor, and this would last forever because you're always going to keep that marker there. Um, and as I, and I explained the problem with thinking that it's tomo, that thinking you're not allowed to burn taharos unnecessarily, and if you think you're tomo when you're not really, you're going to end up burning taharos incorrectly. Okay, next halacha. It's very interesting. I mean, in Yerushalmi. It's always the new, the new Mishnah is set out as Halacha base. So now we have to, what would be the second Mishnah. It doesn't always line up with the numbering of the Mishnahs in the, if you have a set of Mishnah, but it's, it's how they number it. It's a Halacha base. Mishnah, the Mishnah says, Omer of Yudah. Um, we're going back on Kilayim. Remember we mentioned that the, on the 15th of Adar, the inspectors would go out and check and uproot Kilayim. So it says, Rabbi Yehuda said that, At first they used to just uproot the Kilayim and throw it before the farmers. Uh, I, they, would, they would uproot it and put it before them. There's no Isur Hano because the only Kilayim that's Isur Hano is at grapevines and wheat as far as I know. And so if it's any other vegetable, it's Kilayim, they're not allowed to have it grown. So they would uproot it and then again embarrass him a little that you see the be- the you see the Bethton's uh, ex- uh, supervisors uprooting his field and working his field and putting this pile of kilayim before him but at the end of the day he could it was before him he could use it for his animals etc says Mishirabu Abu many people's um, the sinners increased so and they uprooted and throw it into the streets either would so that the owners couldn't get it and then they instituted that they made it hefker. Uh, sorry, mafkirin is kolasode. They just declared the whole field ownerless. We'll discuss this more in the Gemara. So let's go straight into the Gemara. Omer Rebuuda, Rebuuda said, etc. Says Tony Omer Rebuuda, but you show no how you oikrin, mashlichel ifnei, and vohayu smeichim shtei simchos. At first, the base, the the base din inspectors who were checking for kilaim would uproot it and throw it before him, and the the farmer would have two reasons to celebrate. Why? Achas shehoyu menashim sodeim. One is that the base din inspector just uprooted his field, um, weeded his field for him. He had a wheat field with a few vegetables growing in it, and the base din has kindly come and weeded his field for him, taken out those vegetables. And Mishirab, so therefore, um, and what's the second one? The They were allowed to use the kilaim. They could take it and feed the animals. So they got two favors done by the Bethin. So therefore, Mishirabu over Avera, when, when more people started doing Averas and just leaving it for the Bethin inspectors, they would throw it into the roads. I make it hefker that anyone could take it. So the owners didn't gain from having, but they still were happy for one reason, is that their field got weeded 
um, uh, as a favor. So Hitkinu Shehoyu Mafkirin Kol Kula, they then instituted that the whole field becomes Hefker. What does that mean? Very interesting. Until the person weeds the field, the field is Hefker. Until he takes out the Kilayim, the farmer. And therefore, any the farmer would have to do it quickly, because if someone else comes and weeds the field, they can acquire the field, because it's Hefker, it's ownerless. And now we go on to quite a fundamental, I guess it's quite a fundamental question. Um... It says, How do we know that Beisdin are allowed to declare something ownerless? And this is actually one of the major powers of a Beisdin, of a court. Is if they see necessary, they can basically say, we're taking your money and giving it to someone else. Or here, they penalize this farmer by saying, your field is ownerless until the weeds are taken out and then whoever gets it, gets it. Because it's ownerless. She says, as the post says, Whoever came... In those three days, based on the advice of the princes and the elders, they would declare all his property, and he would be separated. I, there was, it was at the time of Ezra when they were going back to Eretz Israel, there were many Jews married to non-Jews. So to force them to se- separate, they said you have within three days to sort yourselves out and separate from your non-Jewish wives. Else we're going to declare your your property ownerless, and also sep and you won't be included in the in Bnei Israel. How do we know that it goes so far as to make it exempt from masters? We'll see why this is necessary. But basically, what happens if you own a field, the farmer has to separate trumas and masters. If the field is ownerless, let's say the owner makes it ownerless, even for a short time then it's exempt from masras. Either the farmer or whoever acquires it can harvest the field and they don't have to separate master. But maybe when Beisdin make it hefker, maybe they just want to penalize the, far, the farmer. They don't want to cause the Levim to lose out. And that's what you would think. Why would the base granted the Beisdin are doing this to get him to, um, to weed his field from Kilayim? But their motivation isn't to cause the Levim to lose out from the Kwanim from their Trumas and Masros. So who says that when they mafkir it, they mafkir it fully? We, we are assuming, we know that they do mafkir it fully, but that's the line of thinking is why, where do you see that they do mafkir it, make it completely owner? So Rabbi Yonasan, Rabbi Yitzchak Barach, Min Hador, he says you can learn it from the following. Ein Mavrinas Ashona. You're not allowed to make a leap year in the seventh year, the, the actual Shemitah year, or in the year following the seventh year. Now, But if they did make a leap year in the Shvi's year or the year following the Shemitah year, it counts. Now, Is this extra month? So they added, remember, in the seventh year, all of your land is Hefger. That's the rule of the Shemitah. Now, when they, and Potu, obviously, you don't have to separate Maser on your field. Um, yeah, I'm not going to go into the Joshua while we know by Hefger you exempt from Maser, but it's learned out from the Psukim that if you Mafger your field, and obviously an ownerless field, but even if it was ownerless for a short time, you don't have to separate Maser. Um, now this extra month they add into the Shemitah year. Obviously, that month, all the produce that the person collected in that month is not Chayev in Maser. Now, 
So this is actually, we, we'll bring it out at the end. We're going to analyze this price. We'll bring it out at the end. But I think the point it's saying is, what do we see? Based in adding an extra month, and that extra month is, they're making the field hefker ownerless for an extra month. And still you're exempt from master. So we see from there that when Bezgvin make property hefker, it's fully, fully hefker that it's exempt from master. Now we're just going to analyze this, this price. It says, It makes sense why in Shvi's they wouldn't make it, they discourage making it a leap year. Because remember in Shvi's no one's allowed to plant or harvest or work in, work in their field. So to extend it for an extra month, it's, re- it's hard enough on the farmers and their parnosa. And now you can extend it an extra month, so rather don't do it. But Motzei Shvi is, why not? It says, So that we don't increase the chance of Chodosh. Remember, you're not allowed to eat from the grain of that year until Pesach, until the Omer is brought on the second day of Pesach. Now, if you're going to add in an extra Adar, you're adding in a whole new month that they're not allowed to eat from the new grain. And what grain are they most likely eating from? Two years ago before the Shemitah year, the last time they could actually collect grain. So you're really making it hard for people if you put in that extra month and delay the, the time they're allowed to eat from their new grain. So therefore, on the year following the Shemitah year, you're also not allowed to add in. Rabbi Zaira B'Shem Rabbi Elozor Hadod Atomart Adshelai Hitir this is all, this that you're not allowed to lengthen, add in a leap year in the Shemitah year, is only before Rebbe permitted them to bring in, uh, to import produce from other countries. Once they were allowed to import produce from other countries, well then there'll be food available in the Shemitah year, so it doesn't matter if you lengthen it. And then, I'm just skip a little the, the colons in brackets. It says, This that we said in Motzei Shviz, in the year following Shviz, you're not allowed to, that's all in the years originally, when the actual harvest would generally be ready before Pesach. And therefore you're waiting for the, for the Omer to be brought so that you can eat the new grain. But now, he says, nowadays, the produce isn't even grown. It's not even ready by Pesach. So therefore it doesn't matter if you add in a new month. It's not delaying eating the new grain because it's not ready yet. Tony shall pay trouble Gamliel. We know that the in the household under Rabban Gamliel they did make it a Shemitah year. They did make it a leap year the year following Shemitah. Omerabi K new point. This is back to our discussion. If based in on Mafkir the field, does it become Hefker? Omerabi Avin Avun in Min Hador. That means if your source is from here, lace achmaminaklum, you can't learn anything from it. But what is the source? It says, keep the Chodesh Aviv. Sorry, keep it that it's in its time of renewal. I, the Torah, you came along and said by the fact that the, rabbi, that the rabbis were made an extra month in the Shemitah year, it is Mafkir, all the property. We see that when the rabbis are Hefkir based in Hefkir, 
It includes it even Hefka regarding Masros. The problem with saying that, he says, is no, that's Doraisa. The Torah tells us that you want Nisan to fall out in spring. And therefore you have to add in a leap year, but it's the Torah telling us to add in a leap year. So it's not the rabbis who are making that field in the Shemitah year ownerless for an extra month. It's the Torah. So it's not a good proof. It says, Omer where, So where does it say this? God is shaloi like So where's the source that Hefker based in Hefker implies to Master? It says, We know that Leket is some of the grain that gets left behind, some of the stalks. You have to leave it for the poor people. If someone piled up grain on top of that, now you've got a problem. The grain at the bottom, you're not sure which part is Leket and which part is your grain. The rabbi said you have to make all that grain all the grain at the bottom that's touching the ground, you have to treat it as leket and give it to the poor people. Now, by saying it goes to the poor people, um, you run into trouble because the poor people don't have to... Leket is ownerless. You don't have to separate masters. But if it's your grain, then you should separate masters. So we see clearly that by the fact that based in can make that grain at the bottom hefker, it includes even hefker to the degree that it's potter from Aser. Now he just says, um, Rebbe Ami, B'Shem Rebbe Shimon ben Lokish, Rebbe Ami says the name of Rebbe Shimon ben Lokish, the Beishamai, he this must be Beishamai, because Beishamai hold that you can be mafkir something just to poor people. If a based in or a person says, I'm mafkir my property to, to poor people, it's a valid hefker. But he'll argue on that and say, no, hefker means ownerless, means it doesn't own to us. You can't say just to poor people because that's not ownerless. That's specific. So that doesn't count as Hefker. So this must be Beishamai who old you can Mafkir it specifically to poor people. So Because if it's like Beishilal, well then you can't be Mafkir property just to poor people. So when the rabbis, so the rabbis can't come along and say, we're treating this grain as Leket. It would turn out that the Anim are eating some of your produce, which has to be separated master. So this solution that Beisdin can declare the whole bottom layer of that pile, Leket, I just for the for the poor people, and it's considered ownerless that they're not chayv in master, must be Beishamai. Says Vahamalei Rabbi Yosi. Rabbi Yosi says no. Shmanu shehu potu mi master to divra kol mishum He says no. We can learn that it's potu from Maiser according to all opinions because of the Knas. It's a penalty. I, the Beisdin aren't making it. The Beisdin are employing their power of Hefker, Beisdin, Hefker. Beisdin make it ownerless. And when Beisdin make it ownerless, this is, has been a whole discussion. It's, ev- it's completely, completely ownerless to the degree that it's not even Chav in Maiser anymore. Okay. okay, the new Mishnah says... Now we're going back to our discussion of Shkolim. Remember, all this discussion was a side point because on the first of Arar, we announced on the Shkolim, so we mentioned other things. We do the Kilayim, and then we mentioned on the 15th of... Um, on the 15th of... Uh, of, of Adar... Sorry, one second... It, mentioned, it wants to mention what you do on the 15th of Arar. So we mentioned a whole list of other things that they would do on the 15th of Arar. We just concluded that. And now we're going to what the 15th of Arar has to do with the Shkolim. So it says, They would set up um, bankers throughout Eretz Yisrael. 
There are various ways of learning it. Is it throughout Jerusalem or throughout the Eretz Yisrael? But we won't get too concerned with that. It says, And on the 25th, Yashvu B'Migdash, they would set up um, bankers in the Migdash. seems there were two purposes for these Shulchanos. Firstly, if people came with foreign currency, or let's say the half a shekel, you only had a full shekel and you need to give half a shekel, and you only have a hundred rand note and you needed to give fifty rand, so they had to have these bankers around to change the money, and also people were coming in with foreign currency to change it into a shekel, so that's why they would have these bankers. Again, they would set them up on the 15th throughout Eritrael and on the 25th in the base of Migdash. Why would they set it up in the base of Migdash? So the commentaries point out, it's to highlight that the time is close. It's the 25th. It's four days before you have to start. Um, it's four days before you have to start. Uh, you have four days left to give your shekel before Nisan, which is when you're supposed to give it before. So again, so they move it to the base of Migdash to highlight that it's getting close. And you better start panicking and sort out your shekel. Um, I feel like it happens every year on Erev Purim. We give a, mach, we give a shekel, three machats is a shekel on Erev Purim. I'm like, in the morning I see it on the shul or at the beginning of the afternoon they put it out. And I'm like, oh, I must do that, must do that. Comes time to read them, to nearly read the Megillah. And I'm like scrambling around because it's always, for some reason, it always runs late. And there I'm like, oh, wait, I need to give machats is a shekel or late in the afternoon. So it's, it's the same thing here. You realize, oh, it's the 25th. They just moved the bankers, they've just moved the table, the money changers have just moved into the Right by the base. I mean that I better get my act together and give my shekel. Nothing. Why on the 25th? So I saw a beautiful idea, um, a beautiful reason. Um, they would for the daily offerings that you should actually separate it four days before, and only offer it, check it for those four days, and offer it on the pot day. So this 25th of um, Adar is when they would separate. The lamb for Rosh Chodesh Nisan, which is the first time, or the lamb for Rosh Chodesh Nisan, which is the first time that you would be using the new shekel. So like this lamb we're inspecting now, we're going to want to buy with your new shekel that you're going to, you have to give within four days. So that's why the 25th lines up very well. It says, Mishay, then it says, Mishay Yoshlub Migdash, from that time when they set up the Money changes in the base of Midash. They start to take pledges. I, they take, what's, I forgot the word, but they take your property and hold it. Oh, they'll, they'll go into your house, take something of yours and hold it until you pay your shekel. Who would they, what, what's it, whose property would they take in lieu of the shekel? Till they give the shekels. Says Levim v'Yisraelim, Levim and Yisraelim, Geirim, converts, Vavodim v'Shukharim, freed slaves. Remember, freed slaves are basically the same as converts. Avaloi noshim v'Avodim v'Ktanim, not women, slaves and children. V'Kol Katan Shehilchil Aviv Lishkola Al Yado. Any manner whose father started to separate on his behalf. Shuv start. So if let's say his 13-year-old son, the father decides, you know what, he's 13 now, I'm going to start giving half a shekel for him. Two years later, he's like, you know what, I don't feel like doing it this year. No, once you've started, then you must always separate a half shekel for your son. says, You do not take property of a kohen to force them to pay because of darkei shalom, because you want to keep the peace with them. Omer b'yuhura heid ben bukhri b'yamne ben bukhri Testified in Yam, they call coin shekel. Any coin who does take a shekel, is not a sinner. I, the Kohanim should not be ben bukhri, ben 
Then Bukhri holds that the Kohanim should not separate a shekel, but if they do, it's okay. We'll see in the Gemara what the problem is with that. Um... That is not true. Any kohen who does not separate a shekel is a sinner. Either kohen must separate a shekel. The kohen made the following drosha, which is actually a mistake. It says, Any mincha from the kohen must be completely burnt. You're not allowed to eat it. Uh, there's an interesting enough, you know, when Bnei Yisrael would bring a mincha, a flower offering, the coin takes a kmitzah, burns that on the base um, on the mizbech, and the rest of the mincha is eaten. If a kohen brings a flower offering, you burn the whole flower offering on the mizbech. It's uh, it's brought in the, that's uh, that pasuk teaching us. It says now Now what about the shteihalechem? The Oimer and the Lechem upon him, those are all considered Menachos, they're all flower offerings. Shelonu, if they belong to us, I, if we would give a shekel and be included in those Korbanos, how could they be eaten? We know that the Kohanim would eat the Oimer, the Shtei Lechem and the Lechem upon him. But if the Kohanim were being included in donating to that sacrifice, remember the whole reason for the shekel is so that every Jew is included in every sacrifice. Every communal sacrifice, well, if the Kohanim are saying, if we donate, then those korbanos should be burnt and we wouldn't be allowed to eat them. Must be, we're not supposed to separate and we're not supposed to give a shekel. That's the Kohanim's drosha, which Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai says is wrong. So again, so that's where it yeah. says, We said you do not take a mashkon from manas. Uh, you don't take the property of a young, of a young child to force him to give a shekel. It says, Hi, Litvotovim. That implies, but you do ask him for it. It says, no, it says, How did the Tamar This is all where he has two pubic hairs and he's 13. I, he's bar mitzvah. But if he does not, Bodo, Loi Bodola Mashkin, Ain Mamashkinim. We do not take a mashkon. Ad, I'm going to change the gears a little bit. Ad shehei ben esrim until he's 20. Afal pi shehevi beistaras. Kinei matnisin ein mamashkinim esako. Sorry, one second. Oh, yeah, leave that out as well. So basically what it's saying, there are three ages regarding a, a boy and the shekel. When he's over 20, that's when the Mishnah is speaking about that you force someone to give a shekel. When they're under 20, between bar mitzvah and 20, they're encouraged to give, but you don't force them to give. And anyone under Bar Mitzvah, obviously you don't even ask the father for a 9-year-old, 10-year-old, 12, 11, 12-year-old, whatever. You don't even ask the father that he wouldn't be obligated in the shekel. So those are the three ages regarding the shekel. That's what we mentioned. Then he says, Kinei Manisin. We have this price or mission which teaches as follows. You don't say that we don't take a mashkun from the Kohanim because of Shalom, but because of Kovod. I, well, it sounds like you're saying, you know, if you start taking, forcing the Kohanim to give a shekel, you're going to cause fights. Well, anyone you force to give a shekel, you're going to cause a fight. I mean, we know how people are when, uh, how people view their property, especially when authority gets involved with forcing them to give it. So, it can't, that can't be the reason. Darkei Shalom can't be the reason. It must be out of 
a respect for the Kohanim. There's a special halachas that you have to treat Kohanim with extra respect. So out of respect for them, we don't force them. We don't take their property and force them to give uh, shkolim. That would be the explanation. It says, Then we mentioned Rabbi Yehuda brought from Ben Bukhi. So Amar Rabbi Brachia, Tamed Rabbi Yochanan The reason behind Rabbi Yochanan Ben Zakai says, Zayitno, this one shall give. Yud Bei Shvatim Yitno, all 12 tribes must give. I have the Gematria very often, it's not often, but once in a while we find the Gematria used to learn out Alocha. What's the Gematria of Zeh? Zion is 7 and He is 5. <coughs> 12. So Zeh Yitno is teaching us that all 12 tribes must give. Rebbe Tavi Bashem Rebbe Hamnuna Kain Mei Shivin Chachomim Le Rebbe Loza Rebbe Tavi said in the name of Rav Hamnuna, this is what the Chachomim said to Rebbe Yehuda. I remember Rabbi Yehuda came along and said that the he's following Ben Bukhya that the Kohanim don't have to give a shekel. And if they do give a shekel, it's okay. Now they said, how can that be? They said to him as follows. We know that the chattas of a minor is Oh, sorry, of an individual. If a person has to bring a chattas and certain things happen to it, it's left to die. If the community has to bring a chattas and certain things have to, have to happen to it, it doesn't die. So we see that you treat communal offerings different to individual offerings. So he says, If you have a private, a kohen who has a private mincha, he's donating, it's completely burnt. But the mincha of the community is always eaten. It's not burnt. Now, the problem with that, as we explained earlier, if a coin contributes a shekel, if a coin contributes a shekel, then that mincha, the omer, let's just say the lechem upon him, is brought with the money of a coin. And it's a mincha offering, so it should be burnt. Now, that, that, now you say, so the chachomim are saying to Rabbi Yehuda, that's a problem. How can you say this? How can you say that the Kohanim are allowed to contribute a shekel when it turns out then you run into trouble when the Kohanim come to eat those korbanos? We know those korbanos have to be eaten because communal menachos are eaten, but the Kohanim, but by the fact that the Kohanim has contributed to it, it should be burnt. So therefore, that can't be. So that's a difficult. So they said to him... The Kasha, wait, your question is difficult. How can you ask a question from something he doesn't agree with? I, we said we highlighted there's a difference between in private offerings and or individual offerings and communal offerings from the fact of a chattas. We said a chattas of an individual is left to die and a chattas of a of the community is left to graze. He says, but the Tanan we learned in a Mishnah, She'ain Chattas Tzibu Meisa, Rabbi Yudah Amir Thomas. Rabbi Yudah says there's no difference. A communal offering is left to die. So that can't be the question. But nevertheless, the question, even if you don't make that comparison, the question still stands, how can, how can the Kohanim be allowed to, if you hold that the Kohanim are not obligated in a shekel, how can you allow them to give a shekel? Because then the, the Korban, the communal Omer and Lechem upon him partially belongs to a Kohen and it should be completely burnt. Says, He responded to us, No, the shekel is not considered a, a personal Nadova. Once you've given your shekel, it becomes communal property. So when they go and buy the, it's not considered the Kohen's property, that it's when they go and buy the communal offering, the Omer, that's not his. 
That's the communities. It says, We responded to him, And we said, Oh, well, in that case, once it's given to the Tzibur, it actually belongs to the Tzibur. Our says, We're concerned, Kohanim are not obligated to separate a shekel, therefore they shouldn't. Because they might not give it wholeheartedly, and therefore it still kind of belongs to them, and then you run into the problem with the Kohen's shekel buying this, and the Rabbonans say, we're not concerned about it. They are, firstly, they're obligated to do it, and at the end of the day, as soon as they give it over as a shekel, it becomes communal property, and when they take that communal property, those shekelim to buy a mincha, well then it belongs to the community, it never ever belongs to an individual. Ksiv, we have the Pesach, says, anyone who passes through the census. This is one of the sources for the Machatzis HaShekel, but it says anyone who passes through the census. Rebbe one says, call um, whoever passed through the Yamsuf must give a shekel. The Kharno Omar Call so the other one says call the over whoever was included in the census gives. Uh, the one pasuk says how do you translate pikudim? So the one says it's whoever passed through the yamsuf. That includes, as we'll see, that includes kohanim. And the other opinion says no. Call over means whoever's included in the census excludes kohanim and levim. Says, so that's what it says now. It says, Man to Omer called to Over Bayama, Gitain Messiah, Rebiochna Menzaka. The one who says that it means whoever passed through the sea is a proof for Rebiochna Menzaka. Because remember, Rebiochna Menzaka says the Kohanim are obligated to separate a shekel. This that they don't is their own mistake. Okay, we're not going to fight with them out of respect to them to give a shekel, but they really should. They're obligated to. And Man to Omer called to Over Alapikudai. And the one who says it means whoever passed was included in the census, Yitain should give the Machat this is a proof for Ben Bukhri who says that Kohanim are not obligated because we know that the Kohanim and the Levim I mean interesting enough it wouldn't just be Kohanim it would be Kohanim and Levim were not included in the census okay we'll leave it there for today